This podcast is brought to you by the Leafwing Center, helping children and families since 1999. Brought to you by the clinical treatment team at the Leafwing Center, this is the Autism Treatment Professional Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Leafwing's podcast. My name is Manjeet Sidhu. I'm a BCBA with the Leafwing Center, and today I'm here with my colleagues. Hi, everyone. My name is Savan Salikian. I'm a BCBA at the Leafwing Center. Hey, everyone. My name is Ray Reyes. I'm a BCBA here at Leafwing Center. And greetings, everybody. This is John Lubers. I'm also a BCBA with the Leafwing Center, and thank you for joining us today. Today, we'll be talking about sleeping difficulties amongst children with ASD. I'm sure in many years of practice, we've all had where parents have come up to us and said, you know what, my kids got sleeping difficulties. And these can be anywhere from falling asleep to staying asleep, non-compliance with nighttime routines, or issues that occur after the parents say goodnight, such as crying, leaving the bedroom, playing in bed, so those kinds of things. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, this is a really great topic. Manji, like you said, we do get this question fairly often or this comment. It may not even necessarily be in the form of a question because I think sometimes our families don't even really understand that it can be addressed behaviorally and they think of it more as maybe a medical or pharmacological thing. But I mean, there's some interesting statistics with respect to the prevalence of sleeping problems in neurotypical kids and the prevalence of sleeping problems in children or individuals with autism spectrum disorders. So I think that really is important for us to talk about from the perspective of treating and meeting our clients' needs. Up to 83%, in fact, up to 83% of children with autism spectrum disorder Mm -hmm. deal with some sort of sleep disturbances. Unwanted co-sleeping, prolonged sleep onset delay, night wakings, early morning wakings, and so on. So yeah, that number, it's, it's definitely significant. So let's talk about that a little bit more in depth. So, so 83% of it's estimated 83% of individuals, children with autism spectrum disorder might have some form of a sleeping problem. And then maybe what did we say? 20 to 25% of even neurotypical kids have some sort of sleeping challenge or problem. When we're talking about sleeping problems, what are the things we're talking about? Man, Gene, you, you did lay them out for us, but can we go over them again just so I have it straight in my head? So the onset of sleep. Okay. Time so, between when they go to bed to when they actually fall asleep. So when we're talking about that, we're talking about like, okay, you know, everybody's bedtime is say 8 p.m. And a child is put to bed at 8 p.m., but parents are commenting or, or asking us for help because their child doesn't fall asleep till 11 p.m., right? Right, yes. okay. right. exactly. All right. What other concerns? There's night awakenings, so waking up throughout the night, and sometimes it can be for long periods of time. Got it. Okay, obviously that's a no-brainer. That's pretty clear that if an individual or a child's waking up three, four times a night, it's interrupting the whole family's sleep, and it can affect the whole family, of course, and as well as theirs. Okay. What else? And then we have interfering behaviors. So when they do wake up in the middle of the night, calling out, leaving their bed, crying out for the parents, going onto their iPad or video games, watching TV, playing in bed, that sort of thing, talking to themselves. Got it. Okay. And I remember something that is probably pretty common and it may not be a problem for all parents based on their family practices. You know, some families may be fine with this. Others may be a little bit more concerned with it. But the idea of co-sleeping, what is that? So co-sleeping is when a child and a parent or caregiver are sleeping together. And there's at least two types of sensory interactions taking place, like touch or sound or eyesight. So a lot of families place value on co-sleeping. And, and in some cases, they, they prefer to do it and they enjoy it. And, and that's great. But reactive co-sleeping, as some researchers have pointed out, that's done more as a response to challenging behaviors where they use co-sleeping to, to cope with mm-hmm. sleep disturbances. So that's the type of co-sleeping that we'll probably place, you know, a little more emphasis on, you know, for our- Got it. Got it. And just so I get my brain around this, we're talking about a parent that has one bedroom 
or or one bed, and then a child that has a separate bedroom or bed, and then that interruption or the change of the child from sleeping in either their bedroom or their bed over into the parent or parent's bed or bedroom, right? That's what co-sleeping is? Yes, or or when a parent enters the child's bed and, and co-sleeps with them as, as a reaction. Right. Yeah. Right. Great point. I didn't even think about that one. The last one, which is kind of interesting, is waking up too early, right? And that's essentially, I guess that would be a very relative type of thing if the family plan or schedule is to wake up at 7 a.m., but the child is waking up at 4 or 10 a.m., but the child's waking up at 6 or 7. You know, that discrepancy between when the family plan and practice is versus when the individual is waking up can be where the problem lies. So, okay. So those are the things we're talking about with respect to sleep problems. We know the prevalency now. How should we tackle this, guys? Is, it, is there an, uh, an assessment that we should look at or what should be our first step here? We oh. can dive right into one of the studies that we came across and kind of explore what the researchers did as part of their assessment and as part of their intervention plan. Got it. They did, they did use the, it's called the Sleep Assessment and Treatment Tool, or SATT, SAT. It was developed by Gregory Hanley, I believe, back in 2005. So it's an open-ended functional assessment interview designed to identify specific sleep problems and other environmental variables that contribute to sleep problems observed. Got it. I think it looks into something like history of the sleep problems, figuring out sleep goals. That's actually good, figuring out sleep goals, because sometimes, I think from the studies that we've looked, some parents are not really aware about the what is developmentally appropriate in terms of how much sleep a ch- my child can should get every night. And I think right. that's actually something that, must be considered when developing a sleep plan. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, Ray. As professionals, we should kind of take that into consideration. The individuals mm-hmm. that we're working with, a three-year-old has very different sleep needs than a 12-year-old does. And then, exactly. of course, we have teenagers mm-hmm. and adults and then elderly, and they all have different sleep needs. So we should, when we start to kind of approach this from a treatment assessment treatment perspective, we should mm-hmm. start to look into the developmental needs. So I think that's mm-hmm. a very good point. Exactly. Right. And not and not getting enough sleep is definitely positively correlated with behavior problems. Mm-hmm. Right. And attentional problems too, Manjeet. That's a mm-hmm. great point. I didn't even, I forgot about that. When we're working with our kids, if we're teaching them skills and we're teaching them things and we're having difficulty with attention and staying on task, you know, we might want to explore this idea of how did they sleep? Did they get good sleep? And mm-hmm. is that part of the explanation? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. So to all the professionals out there, the sleep assessment treatment tool or the SAT developed by Hanley in 2005 is an excellent functional assessment tool. It's basically provides for a a structured interview Mm -hmm. and it captures a lot of information about a child's sleep problem and history and their sleep goals, like Ray pointed out, Mm -hmm. identifying specific sleep interfering behaviors. Mm -hmm. And it even has a menu, I'll call it towards the end, where, where parents and, and practitioners can kind of choose and custom tailor an intervention based on, on the results of the SAT. So definitely a tool worth considering and worth using for, for the professionals out there. Yeah, I, I agree uh, on that, Savan. I think in also it's just for the, our, our listener out there, our professional that's listening to this, it's a it's a five to six page assessment, pretty comprehensive at glance. And you know, it asks questions like, once in bed, does your child have difficulty staying in bed? Or once asleep, does your child wake in the middle of the night? Yes, no. On average, how many times? How many nights per week? So it kind of asks a, it gives a good assessment of sleeping behavior. Absolutely. So in the studies that we reviewed, in the literature that we reviewed, we found that the SAT was a commonly used assessment tool to gather more information about, mm-hmm. about sleep problems. Definitely useful. Sleep what about di- a sleep diary? I think you yeah. were going there, Savan. Yeah. yeah. What about that? Yeah. So that was another tool used in, in the literature that we reviewed. And this was more geared towards parents. So parents were the data collectors in this method. So basically a sleep diary, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. Parents recorded the times that they bid good night, 
the number of naps the child had during the day, the duration of those naps, Mm -hmm. how many night wakings occurred, how long those night night wakings lasted for, if there was any co-sleeping involved. So really a lot of useful information, especially for baseline purposes and Mm -hmm. to help guide the intervention and to kind of narrow down the results a little bit. Mm -hmm. And guys, when we're talking about a sleep diary, we're not necessarily compared to the, in contrast to the SAT by Hanley, we're talking about something that it's not a formal, already pre-created, pre-constructed tool, but it's maybe something that you as a professional Mm -hmm. would develop for your particular client, your family and their needs. And like Savan outlined, it would include things like, okay, what is your sleep routine? What time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? And all the questions that were detailed. It could be done in a Word document or Mm -hmm. on a piece of paper or similar to a notebook that you, a school home notebook that you would send home. Mm -hmm. One of those composition books that could be given to your family and they could just have an entry for every day with the questions. And so it's really a way of starting to accumulate the information that we as professionals need to be able to start looking at this from the behavior analytic problem perspective. Definitely. Thanks, John. So we have the SAT, which we came across, commonly used measurement tool. We have the sleep diaries that we we just discussed that we came across, also very useful tool. And for the purposes of the research studies that we reviewed, there was also infrared nighttime video that was used, and this was to capture raw data. Mm -hmm. So these were cameras that were set up in discrete locations in children's bedrooms, and they continuously recorded child's nighttime behaviors. Yeah, so they they took like a certain percentage of the nights that they are collecting data. Around 30%. And basically use that data for IOAs. Okay. That the parents are indeed collecting accurate data. Okay. So did they describe why they didn't collect like some solid period of time? Like, okay, we're going to collect two weeks worth of data. Did they describe why they did a sampling and they collected that? Was it just a purely a matter of like a research practicality thing where they couldn't necessarily get all that data? Or was it an issue of this is what we need? Or did they even talk about that at all in the articles? I don't recall. I think it depended on the availability of the camcorder and the number of errors in setting up the equipment. There were some nights where parents might have forgotten to turn it on. So those Mm. all kind of played a role. Okay. And anybody, anybody who's ever done a research study knows the practical (laughs) parts of research that happens. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we have a couple good assessments out there that we can use. What about, should we talk a little bit about now intervention strategies or should we talk about the, the particular studies and the participants that were in there? Yeah, I think at the very least, John, it's worth mentioning. It's definitely worth mentioning the studies that we're referring to before we get any further. So we're, we're actually referring to two different studies that we came across. So the first study was published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis in spring 2013, titled An Individualized and Comprehensive Approach to Treating Sleep Problems in Young Children. This study was conducted by C. Sandy Jin, Gregory Hanley, and Lauren Beaulieu out of the Western New England University. So that particular study focused on three participants, all male, aged seven to nine years old. Two of them had autism spectrum disorder. So that's the first study that we referred to, which we'll probably go into in more depth. The second study is called The Effectiveness of Function-Based Interventions to to Treat Sleep Problems, Including Unwanted Co-Sleeping in Children with Autism. That was carried out by Lori McClay, Karen France, Jacqueline Knight, Blampede, and Hasty, And that was published in 2018 out of the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. In that period, it was that the Journal of Behavior Interventions? I believe so. Yeah, in 2018. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was a, I really liked that study. Both studies were nice in the sense that they'd addressed pretty directly what we're encountering as professionals, the problem. And both studies kind of offered a little bit different to us as professionals. Of course, again, I think you, you did mention this, Simon, but I think the, the GIN study was from 2013, right? And the McClay study is from 2018. So a five-year gap between the two studies. And then you said the participants or the the kids in the GIN study were ages five to seven? 
Seven to seven nine. Seven to nine. Seven to nine. And then in the McClay was two to five, two if to I recall. Five. Right. Yes. And there was seven participants in that study, all of whom had an autism diagnosis. Excellent. Okay. Fantastic. Now, what about, should we talk a little bit about the interventions globally? Should we talk about the particulars in the study? What do you guys think is the next direction we want to take for our listeners? Maybe an overview of, of the participants and, and the type of sleep problems and goals that they were looking at. We already kind of covered the measurement tools, which were similar across mm-hmm. both studies, the SAT, the sleep diaries, the nighttime infrared recording. Yeah, perfect. So, um, that sounds a great way to go. Awesome. So in the GIN study, which had three participants, there were similar sleep problems across all of the participants. Mm-hmm. So those included nighttime awakenings, sleep interfering behaviors, and also early morning waking or, or you know, well, I mentioned that already, the nighttime awakenings. And I think I'm, I'm missing one. Uh, the uh, sleep onset delay, SOD. Yes, yes. Excellent. Okay. And so I think those- I remember that two of them were on medication as well for sleep. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's right. I think... There was mel- melatonin, Benadryl, and I, may- maybe one of them was taking clonidine as well. Yeah, so. yes. Okay, guys. So we covered the gin article there in terms of participants and problem behaviors. What sort of thing did we see in McClay, in the McClay article? What did they add to the table in terms of participants and problem behaviors? Okay, for the McClay study, the participants are from seven families from New Zealand All children have a formal diagnosis of ASD. The ages range from two to five years old. There were five boys, two girls. The children were non-vocal or communicating using a maximum of two to three word utterances and engaged in parent-reported unwanted co-sleeping along with any other kind of behavioral sleep disturbances like prolonged sleep onset delay, frequent or prolonged night wakings, and or early morning wakings. Got Um, it. In terms of medication, two of the seven kids continued taking three milligrams of melatonin throughout the study. One out of seven started using trimeprazine during intervention. Got it. Okay. Again, just to point out for our listener, the GIN study was more the, what was it, seven to nine-year-olds? Seven to nine-year-old yeah. right. kids, yes. And then McClay is the younger kids at the two to five, right? Yes. Okay. And then in, in GIN, it was three boys. In McClay, it was a little bit of a mixture, maybe mm-hmm. four boys and three girls or something five, like that. Five boys, two girls. Oh, yeah. One boy and one female, one girl. They're siblings. They're sleeping in the same ah. Yeah, they shared a same household. Okay, same household. Good. Okay. So global, let's should we talk a little bit about the global general interventions that are in this world of sleep problems? Well, we'll start with how things are being done. You know, okay. um, More often than not, our families will resort to consulting with their doctor, pediatrician, you know, to address this sleep problem. And unfortunately, uh, the studies have mentioned that. Not all doctors are really versed in this area of addressing sleep disorders among younger individuals. And the typical course of treatment is, well, they say they will outgrow it, which they won't. Mm -hmm. And if they are actually given something, it is a prescription medication in about 50% of the time, which is pretty high already, 50%. It was also mentioned that in 75% of the time, the children are recommended to have over-the-counter sleep aids. Mm. So that's where the mindset of folks are. And that's why we kind of want to break out of that mindset and get into an ABA-based sleep intervention. And that's Mm. why we're here. Mm Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. I think that's important. We probably know as professionals, but in case we don't, to point out that there is a behavioral intervention for our kids with sleeping problems, for our kids on the spectrum. There are assessment tools, there are a function or evidence-based practices, and that medication is not always the, the first course or the right course for treatment with respect to our children that we're working with. So it's very good points, Ray. Thank you. Yes, definitely. And what's great about the two studies that we came across is they both used assessment methods 
functional behavior assessments to identify functions of the problem behavior, which in many cases was social attention, and also to custom tailor treatment packages for each child. So maybe we can go through some of the different interventions that were used across both studies and kind of dive into that a little bit. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more, guys? I think this is kind of important. If we t- just touch base a little bit more, Savan, you pointed out that they they looked at the functions, the hypothesized function of the mm-hmm. behavior. And overwhelmingly, the hypothesized function for the behavior derived from the assessments was attention. Sometimes access or tangible, and then sometimes it was escape, right? Right. Do you recall at all? I don't recall now. I'm looking at this right now, the information. I don't recall if there was any automatic or sensory reinforcement. There was in the gin study. In the gin. How how prevalent was that, Manji? Do you remember Um, what? what, I don't remember. Of the three, was it one, two, or three, or or do you not recall at the top of your head? One for sure. It could have been two. Okay. Interesting. All right. Did they talk a little bit about that or do you recall what they said with respect to that? They did talk about it and in terms of one of the I participants, I believe, was waking up in the middle of the night and engaging in self-talking. Interesting. Yeah. I guess what I was, where my curiosity is, what does a sleep problem that serves an automatic or sensory function look like? You know, what is that? I don't, I'm, I'd have to really kind of scratch my head and think about that. But you provided a great example of one there, which, which is a child waking up and engaging in self stimulatory hand flapping or self talking. Exactly. Yes. Playing yeah. there. So just looking at it right now, playing with clothing. Yeah. Curtains, rocking their body back and forth, shaking their head, mm-hmm. jumping, mm-hmm. running around the room. Mm, interesting. And this was one particular participant. In this the was one study. particular. Yeah. Yes. I remember this for the gin study. They have one specific child that did engage in those kinds of behavior and none in the McClay study. McClay, right. Yeah. And those are the younger ones again, the yeah, two-year-olds, the, the five-year-olds and McClay. And for for this particular participant in the gin study, they were very lengthy night wakings because mm-hmm. of the um, automatic rate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So we talked a little bit about functions and we kind of are concluding, well, the, another important thing to mention with functions is that most of the the studies found that the behavior served multiple functions. So in addition to attention, attention I think was a function for almost all of the participants across both studies. That's right. Uh, It sometimes found escape, occasionally found access or one of those two. And then in the example that Manji, you just brought to our attention, there was one particular participant that had an automatic or self-stimulatory function. Right. Interesting. Okay. What about interventions, guys? What are we, like globally, what are we talking about with respect to interventions? What kind of things do we do? For the sleep onset delay, the intervention is fairly similar. So basically, again, just to review, sleep onset delay is sending kissing your child goodnight at seven o'clock but they don't really sleep until 10. so a common theme for this intervention is making sure that the child is motivated more motivated sleep right Mm -hmm. so what they do is they move they play around with the time the the time that the child is actually sent to bed so for that example that i just mentioned they'll send they'll bid the child goodnight at 10 o'clock because mm-hmm. the child is more likely to fall asleep within minutes after 10 o'clock. It's closer the to their actual sleep the, just time. the actual sleep time. And then from there, they shape it back. They mm-hmm. keep shaping back. They keep moving back until the sleep time goal is met. From what I've gathered, from what we've gathered, this really works, addressing mm-hmm. sleep onset delay. And it's not very difficult to implement either yeah, compared to some of the other really interventions. Changing the time alone for these, what? How many kids are these? Uh, ten kids. Mm-hmm. For these ten, yeah, kids? It's, it's seven and three, ten seven. exactly. So for a sleep onset delay, this alone fixes it, addresses that, which Got makes it. sense, guys. So, so what are we talking about behavior analytically? There, guys, we're talking about two processes: Probably establishing operations, mm-hmm. 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 a little bit, yeah, yeah, the motivating operations and creating a maybe a little bit of a situation of, I don't want to say deprivation. I don't know, but that's really the technical term. It but is. Yeah. Creating. Establishing the value of sleep. They're mm-hmm. increasing the value of sleep. Exactly. Naps, might, naps can 
sometimes decrease the value of, of they can be abolishing. Yeah. They can definitely decrease. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really one of those things that we got to talk to our families about as professionals. Like, look, I understand that you're putting priority on naps. However, if the naps are becoming like problematic at nighttime, you know, the sleep time, then we really need to address it. And that's one thing that, at least for me, I, I hit that wall sometimes with families, you know, like letting go of that nap in the afternoon just so they can have better sleep at night. So That is tough, you know, and if tough. you look at it, I mean, we can go a little deep on this, but <laughs> if you look at this from the perspective sometimes of the parent, sometimes that afternoon nap can be negative reinforcement for their mm. behavior of letting the, the individual, <laughs> exactly. the child sleep. So you know, true. it's like, it's That's, when they cook. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, know, when they, you get you get your chores done. Yes, when your child's yeah. Sleeping, yeah, yeah. Pay yeah. bills, make phone calls, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So it's tough sometimes for us yeah. as professionals to get a parent to maybe suffer a little bit in the short term to mm-hmm. gain in the long term. It's a it's a challenging kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, we gotta make sure what they really want. You know, like okay, you can't have both. You know, there has to be a compromise somewhere. You know, to yeah. have uh, some gains. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's the speaking to the to the aspect of social validity, right? We're talking yes. about social validity then. Is this important mm-hmm. to you? We talked a little bit. I want to kind of just also point it out. You talked about shaping, guys. It was one of the things where they started to start it with the sleep onset problem where they started with, okay, bedtime was eight o'clock, but real sleep time was 10 o'clock. So then we're going to go closer to 10 and then move mm-hmm. it back closer to eight. Mm-hmm. Did they describe mm-hmm. any more details about how they thought that would that would work ideally they each child had a different rule contingencies for how they they move back but primarily along the lines of if the child fell asleep within x amount of minutes they move back the time about 15 30 minutes average was yeah Yeah, 15 minutes or so 30 minutes until uh, i guess from what we read it it was done pretty much straightforwardly you know reinforcing approximations yeah approximations it works got it for me that alone is a very powerful intervention just that alone is to make that huge difference for at least sleep onset delay yeah it's in it's modifying the environment Mm -hmm. to change behavior and so that's a really good example i mean for us in behavior analysis we love those kinds of things because they're more naturalistic they're not too intrusive they're usually higher in social validity usually higher in treatment acceptance and those types of things that are important to us so yeah it becomes it's those antecedent interventions are great what Mm -hmm. about other antecedent interventions guys were there some other things that we would want to kind of point out from the global perspective yeah great use of non-contingent reinforcement the researchers came across this issue with most of the participants is after being bid good night they were the, the participants were seeking parent attention, asking questions, calling out, and also trying to get access to tangibles, toys, tablets, things like that. So in both studies, a period of time was set up before bedtime in which rich social interaction would occur between the parents and the kids. During this time, the kids would have open access to conversation with their parents, asking, answering questions, access to books, some, some different toys, maybe some electronics. And then once goodnight was bid, all of these were withheld. And mm. the purpose behind this was to lower the motivation for engaging in sleep interfering behaviors, especially the, the tangible function, the, the social attention function ones, mm-hmm. while they're in bed. With with the idea being that they'd be satiated with with that rich that attentional rich, schedule before bedtime. Yes, yeah. exactly. So there is no deprivation there. So we're kind of talking about satiation now instead of dep- deprivation. Exactly, exactly. And that, so and that method would work great also with automatic reinforcement. There, let them run around their room. Let them engage in flapping or rocking their body. Yeah. So, you know, once they've been, like they have 30 minutes to do all that and then it's like, okay, it's bedtime now, you know, that helps decrease the value of the automatic reinforcement as well. Got it. So whether these, these attentional function behaviors with respect to sleep onset, non-contingent reinforcement in a planned time in the evening before Mm -hmm. bed, close to bedtime where the child was just 
absorbed in attention and whatever they wanted from the parents was was effective. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. some fantastic is there. What about like uh here's another sort of interesting sort of behavior analytic approach. I kind of, you know, always get a smile out of these great things, but <laughs> what about the grow clock guys? That was something that was brought up in the McClay study. What, what is that? What, how do they use that? So it's a digital clock with a large screen, which indicates a sun, meaning that it's time to wake up or stars and a moon, which indicates it's time to sleep. It's, it's to basically discriminate between nighttime and morning mm-hmm. by visually looking at it. And what's interesting was, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, John. No, I just, I was just going to say, Savan, I'm sorry. I just, it makes me laugh. It makes me giggle that that, <laughs> that that exists and that it's out there. I love it. I mean, I think it's great that we have, or somebody has invented a clock that indicates nighttime and daytime for our individuals, including kids that need something to facilitate stimulus discrimination in SDs and S deltas. I think it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And in, in the FBA outcomes, especially in the McClay study, indicated that most of the children in the study, they had that difficulty discriminating sleep time from, from wake time. So wake the grow time, clock yeah. functioned as a discriminative stimulus for either sleep or waking up. I know this is a little premature now, but you know, since we're on the topic right now, did, that, did we have any discussion in the articles of how that functioned? Did that start to take on discriminative stimulus properties with some of the participants? I don't so, think it was brought up. Was it discussed? Because okay. we were just talking about this. Uh, did it work? Well, you know, in the McClay study, um, the, the intervention was implemented as a package. Mm-hmm. So although treatment effect was yeah. recorded and measured, they didn't, they didn't have a staggered approach where Got they it. had one intervention at a time. Okay. So it's kind of difficult to differentiate which specific component had the most profound effects. Mm-hmm. Got but it. Yeah. We could use it with some of the participants. That would be interesting at some point down the line, a study to replicate this a little bit, but really replicate the intervention components mm-hmm. to component see what analysis. had the, Yeah, exactly. A component analysis to do that. That would be really cool. Okay. So we had that positive reinforcement. Do we have any like, what about like extinction and, and consequence-based interventions? Anything with respect to that? Yeah, extinction was used. They called it planned ignoring. It's like a modified form of extinction. And it was a follow-up to the gradual fading of parental presence. So maybe we should talk about that component first because that's what, that's what they use in the McClay study. And especially if co-sleeping or access to parent attention was a reinforcing variable, a time-based parental visit schedule was implemented. Mm. So the parents would openly make themselves available regardless of behavior in time increments. I think it was every one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes. And then progressively, those time intervals were thinned out. So mm-hmm. they were further apart. And that also, in a way, was functioning as non-contingent reinforcement. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of removed the motivation for, for the kids to leave their beds and, and try to co-sleep. During that time, the parents were instructed to keep neutral facial expressions, minimize eye contact, and gently guide their child back to bed with minimal intention if they were out of bed during those visits. So this is the planned ignoring phase and the extinction phase of the component package, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So during planned ignoring, just redirect them. When Clarify for me, guys. I don't recall this specifically from the study, but when there were little intervals of attention provided, was that during the sleep, what should have been sleep time, or was that before? I think it was right after the bid goodnight. So in the okay. McClay study, the parent would either visit or, or they would sit in the chair like next to the child's bed, and then they would gradually further uh, increase the distance. Yeah. Okay. So there's kind of two things going on there. There's a parent visit schedule that was utilized. And then there was also a actual like fading of the parental presence. Yes. Yeah. So really interesting. So that, that thinning of that reinforcement schedule by pulling themselves out was also, and it sounds like they did it pretty systematically, was also a part of the package. So again, this is really based on sound behavior analysis principles and evidence-based practices. So that's, that's really, really great to see. Yeah, it definitely was. There was a lot of emphasis placed on establishing and maintaining a consistent sleep environment. So all of the researchers here, they were really focused on establishing conditions where 
the same conditions in which the child falls asleep and the same conditions should still be present if the child wakes up. For Got example, it. if a child wakes up in the middle of the night, we don't want to have an iPad within arm's reach. So to that end, the researchers set up a pre-bedtime cleanup routine. And this accomplished a few different things. It made items inaccessible during sleep time so as to prevent distraction. So right before the bid goodnight, the kids were asked to put their toys away. I think it was in like a designated bag or a box. Mm -hmm. So not only did that make some of these items inaccessible during sleep, it also functioned as a discriminative stimulus to indicate that, okay, it's sleep time now. These things are being put away mm -hmm. and they're not going to be available even if I wake up in the middle of the night. So that was kind of an interesting environmental modification that pretty easy to implement as well. It's not a very right. uh, taxing intervention. Right. There was a participant in the gin study who used to fall asleep listening to music. And then the parents would go in and turn off the music, take off the headphones. So when he woke up in the middle of the night, he didn't know how to go back to sleep because the music wasn't there. So how you mentioned earlier, Savad, about the consistent environment, that's very important. So I think yeah. they, in, in that intervention, they correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say they started playing. I think white, white noise, maybe. Yeah, or white or noise. Yeah. 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 Sounds. As soon yeah. as the parents left the room, it was turned on right before they left. And then it was turned off when the participant woke up in the morning. It, so it was playing yeah. throughout the night. There was also a participant in the McClay study. And this was a four-year, five-month-old girl that participated in the study that would listen to mom whisper her to sleep. Mm. That was part yes. of the... And, and they replaced that with ocean sounds, ocean wave sounds. So you could hear the, it's kind of a white noise kind of mm -hmm. thing. And so it's a little bit of a differential reinforcement of an alternative or appropriate behavior, or maybe even a more logistically possible behavior rather than mom or dad whispering and singing our kids to sleep every night. That's mm -hmm. a little bit more manageable. <laughs> you can turn Definitely. the radio on. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, so, social stories were used, especially in the McClay study. And that's just a great behavioral analytic tool that we use with a lot of different behaviors. So they were individualized. They included photographs and text depicting the steps required or expected from, from the kiddos surrounding bedtime routine and other expectations around sleep, like sleeping independently. And it also pointed out any rewards or reinforcers that they would receive for good sleeping or following through with their sleep goals. So that was a tool that was used. So some of the principles involved in, in social stories are, are like modeling, right? So for us professionals, we would want to look at this from the perspective of what makes modeling most successful. Well, if we watch ourselves do something, it's usually the most successful. However, sometimes that's not possible. Conversely or alternatively, sometimes if we see somebody that is highly motivating and what we're talking about here is if a, we have a younger child who's really into Wonder Woman or Captain America and they see Wonder Woman or Captain America emulating those types of things or the Bernstein Bears or whatever it is that is motivating or interesting, the Wiggles or whatever we can utilize those, that interest, that motivation, and those modeling principles to really maximize the effectiveness of the social stories. Definitely. So that covers, I want to say, all of the different interventions well, that they, they, or they, most. They did, for both studies, they did have some parent training for the right. families just so they can have an idea, you know, expectations as from them uh, when they do implement the intervention. And I believe that's very important because since these are parent implemented interventions. Great point, right? Yeah, great reminder. They were and, all implemented by the parents. And there was ongoing con communication as well between the family and the researchers throughout the intervention, which for us, it equates to continual parent training throughout the process. Yeah. And I think just a comment too about the quality of the studies, both studies included information statements or data on inner observer agreement. So the independent variable was measured, treatment integrity, the dependent variable was measured. So they were all methodologically adequate or, or highly sound 
even given the difficulties of measuring sort of a, I don't want to say a covert behavior, but uh, mm. it's an overt behavior, but it's a semi-difficult to measure overt behavior yeah. because it's happening in somebody's home or you know a, a clinic at night kind of thing. And also to add to some of the measures that you mentioned, John, treatment acceptability was also measured in the McClay study. Mm. And uh, the researchers found that out of everyone who completed the intervention, the parents overall reported the interventions to be acceptable, effective, and clear to understand. Mm -hmm. However, they did perceive the interventions to require a lot of effort and time. So that, yep. that's not too surprising. But yes. on, on the positive note, they, they were behind the interventions in terms of the clarity and, and the ease of implementation and, and the effectiveness. Yeah, that should be some no surprise to any of our behavior analyst professionals out there. Most of our things do require a lot of effort and energy to put in to do it, and certainly up front. And that's usually a trade-off, like we mentioned earlier, is you have to kind of you know put in the energy up front to be able to reap the benefit down the line. Sometimes that's easier to convey. And each family and each parent is different and their circumstances change from moment to moment. You know, at one particular time in their lives, they may have a lot of additional family stress. You know, there may be grandparents that are ill. There may be additional work stress. Somebody may have a big deadline or what have you. And so a parent may, may not really be able to concentrate on these types of things. And of course, we know that as professionals that we have to choose the most appropriate time in addition to these things that require so much effort. So true. So what should we talk about next, guys? Should we talk about the general summaries of the interventions? What kind of, we didn't calculate effect sizes, but most everybody benefited from it. A couple kids dropped out. Maybe we should mm -hmm. kind of go over that information. And where should we go? What should we leave our professionals with takeaways after that? So overall, the results were positive mm -hmm. across yeah. the board. There was some yeah. really significant improvement. We can provide maybe just a couple of examples because there's a lot of different participants to get yes. to. But let's point one out from the gin study. So one of the participants, Walter, he was a seven-year-old, typically developing boy. Mm -hmm. He was experiencing delayed sleep onset. He would talk to himself, get out of bed, walk around. Treatment package, some of the interventions we mentioned earlier were, were put together in a package for him. His bedtime was pushed forward by one hour. He was allowed access to all of his preferred items and activities for at least 20 minutes before getting ready for bed. His sleep onset delay decreased from 55 minutes down to about 22 minutes. His sleep interfering behaviors decreased to near zero levels and they were maintained in the follow-up conditions and across all forms. Sleep interfering was the walking around and talking? Talking to himself, walking around, yes. Yes, sitting up in bed, engaging in stereotypy. And also night waking also decreased from baseline about 12 minutes down to four minutes and then zero during follow-up. So some really positive results with that particular participant. Here's another example, Andy, nine-year-old boy with ASD. This was from the gene study as well experienced delayed sleep onset and extended night awakenings, stereotypy, including body rocking, head shaking, repeated manipulation of items, occasional screaming, tantrums. A package was put together for him as well. Bedtime moved forward an hour and a half at the start of treatment. That's to establish the value of sleep. The parents allowed Andy to engage in stereotypy for 30 minutes before his bedtime routine in order okay. to decrease the value of stereotypy during the time that he's in bed. During sleep time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. After midnight was bid, all of these activities and items were restricted. The parents would gently interrupt stereotypy and guide him back to bed. Minimal attention, neutral facial expression. And his SAT results indicated he had a sleep dependency on music. So mm -hmm. Andy's uh, parents would turn on a CD player. Manjit, I think you brought this example up right, earlier. Yes. And they played music for about 45 minutes when they bid him good night. So the researchers asked the parents to eliminate the music in order to keep a consistent environment throughout the night, with the logic being that since the stimulation of music was not present throughout the entire night, brief night wakings episodes, they were turning into full, full awakenings. So I think they replaced the music with white noise for that one. Yeah, um, they did. So his sleep onset delay decreased from about 16 minutes down to eight minutes. So that's a 50% decrease right there. 
His sleep interfering behaviors decreased to near zero levels during treatment. And night waking decreased from a baseline of 26 minutes down to 22 minutes. However, most of those 22 minutes were, were quiet wakefulness. So his eyes would be open, but he would still be in bed. Got it. So that's just a couple of examples of, of some of the positive results from the gin study. Got it. Being the objective professionals that we are, we probably should look at a couple of the situations where things didn't work out ideally or where parents dropped out. So we can look at that from our perspective of professionals and see if we can anticipate any problems there. I remember that we're, we're, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, but it might be worth us kind of discussing it again. There were a couple parents that dropped out, correct? Yeah. In the McClay study, there were two, if I remember correctly. And that was mostly, guys, that was mostly because of the intervention difficulty in particular. Was it the planned ignoring that was difficult for these parents to, to implement? There might have been other personal factors that led them to drop yeah, out as it well. It was mentioned by the authors that there were some personal factors that may have been in effect around that Got time it. when they were in the study. But the authors did mention that from the data that they have collected so far for, with those two families, it looks like they were having difficulties as well during implementation of the intervention. Planned ignoring, yeah. I mean, I think that speaks maybe just reading between the lines in the study, and I know you know we probably shouldn't do that, but mm -hmm. I'll just take liberty to do that here, is probably there were some things, like I was saying earlier about maybe there was additional work stress or family mm -hmm. stress, you know, there was ill family members or financial stress mm -hmm. or something that made the the starting and the implementation of this mm -hmm. treatment package non-ideal. So again, making the point of and take the takeaway message of this is probably something that we should really take into consideration like we always do when yeah. we start a treatment package. Yeah, and especially uh, we have to consider the the ages of our participants. The, for the McClay studies, their their kids were much younger than Jen studies it may be That's harder right. for these parents to kind of like really stick by the ignore, guns. stick to their yeah. guns, you know, while their yeah. two-year-old is having a fit at 3 a.m. I mean, any parent will have a hard time with that. So in a way, I can, understand, I can, I can see that. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. That's very, really logical. Yeah. So what should we do guys now? Shall we, shall we kind of summarize everything for our professionals and shall we give some takeaways and some direction or what do you think? Is there something else that we want to really explore or expose our listeners to? Yeah, that sounds like a, like a plan, John. And I also wanted to point out, and I, I love how the researchers, especially in the gin study pointed this out and, and I'll, and I'll read this quote, behavioral as opposed to pharmacological treatment of pediatric sleep problems begins with a look at the target behavior mm -hmm. through the lens of a contingency. They go on to say, we are interested in the behavior of lying quietly in bed and falling asleep. Procedurally, we focus on developing a period of behavioral quietude or lying quietly in bed because that is a measurable dimension that always precedes the target behavior of falling asleep. They also go on to say that discriminative stimuli that often occasion falling asleep include dimly lit rooms, cool temperatures, particular pillows, blankets, stuffed animals, rocking, or the mere presence of a parent. I thought it was great how the researchers really took on a behavior analytic approach. They, they operationally defined all of the target behaviors and, and the problem behaviors, and they really looked at it through a lens of, of contingencies and, and through a lens of, of identifying functions for, mm -hmm. for these behaviors. So I thought that was, that was great for, for us behavior analysts. Yeah, it really speaks to us uh, the, in the sense that we're looking at it in terms of we're identifying it, we're operationally defining it, we're looking at the antecedent conditions, we're looking at the, the functions that the behavior serves, and we're developing a, an, a, an, an intervention or a composite intervention that has multiple components to it that address those antecedents and those behavioral functions. And then, like we mentioned earlier, parent training is a big component here, like it is with everything, with potty training, with feeding, with behavior intervention, with teaching skills, with all these types of things. Parent training is an important component here for our families. So we really need to kind of not forget that that's an important part of what we offer to our family. 
Definitely. And for the professionals out there and, and myself as a professional, I, I do plan to start using sleep diaries for parents to to record and, and to track information about, about their child's sleeping behaviors. And we also encourage the use of the SAT as well. It's a really mm-hmm. useful functional assessment tool. It captures a lot of information to help guide sleep-based interventions. So I myself as a professional plan to integrate that more. Into, so, into my practice. Definitely, yeah. My takeaways from this, guys, and tell me if you have any additional ones for our listeners, but my takeaways are, you know, starting very global, very high level perspective is that to, to just confirm a little bit that sleep problems can be addressed behavior analytically and with behavioral interventions, and it can be successful. Two, that there is one formal structured assessment tool, semi-structured tool, and that's the SAT by, by Hanley. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the lesser structured tool, which is the sleep diary. So there's ways to assess. There are evidence-based practices for intervention. So we have those types of things, and those are based on you know positive reinforcement, planned ignoring, altering the motivation, motivating variables and motivating operations. And with respect to deprivation and satiation, and those things are well um, established in our literature. And also that, that necessarily, if we are having a client or somebody that has a problem with sleep that in a family brings it to us as a concern that you can kind of have a discussion with them that there are alternatives to a medical treatment approach. Not saying that, that that's wrong or bad or you can't do it. Just saying that, you know, um, when we want to really best support our families out there that we can bring to their attention that, you know, there may be some things that we that can be offered that are non-medicinal, non-pharmacological, non-medical based, and they might be behavioral interventions. So those those are some some big takeaways that I would offer. Anything? Am I missing anything, guys? Um, no, I think you covered it all, John. Yes. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So I guess maybe we should thank our listeners for listening to our podcast today. As always, if you have requests, questions, comments, or anything for future podcasts or about this podcast, please visit us on the website and make some comments or request some additional information or make suggestions. We'd be really happy to hear from you because this really is a podcast for you, for the listener, even though it does help us considerably as professionals. We hope it helps you the same. It is ultimately for you. So we're providing this sort of as a service to kind of get behavior analysis disseminated in media formats i.e. podcasts. That's easy for us, you know, when you're on the train or in an airplane or in a commute or wherever you are and you need to kind of, you know, expose yourself to some treatment, behavior analytic or behavior behavior analytic approaches. You can always access this kind of stuff through podcasts. So please do reach out to us. And otherwise, thank you very much. And we wish you good luck with everything. Thank you all. We hope you found this helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more insight from the LeafWing Center, please visit the LeafWing Center website and blog page at leafwingcenter.org. Email us at info at leafwingcenter.org or visit us at your favorite social media outlet. Feel free to submit questions or comments about this or future podcasts, and we will put links to information discussed in today's show on the website. We look forward to next time. Thank you.